Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go in to the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content, not just the front line with Joe and Joe. And also, if you don't mind, wherever you find Joe and I on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, we're all over the place. Uh, please click something that's going to help us like subscribe share do all that fun stuff uh, and most importantly please keep us in your prayers and today we are very pleased and honored to be welcoming back to the front line with joe and joe first time on veritas though uh the last time was pre-covid on our social media page we're uh pleased to be welcoming back timothy j gordon and many of you out there uh, at the Veritas Network know Tim Gordon, but for those of you who do not, a brief introduction. Uh, Timothy J. Gordon studied philosophy in pontifical graduate universities in Europe, taught it at Southern California Community Colleges, and, and then went on to law school. He holds degrees in literature, history, philosophy, and law. Currently, he resides in Mississippi with his wife and six children, where he writes and teaches philosophy and theology. Timothy J. Gordon, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe, brother. Oh, thank you so much for that cordial welcome, Joe and Joe. How are you guys? How is the post-COVID version of you? Are you like the same guys or what? No, we, we we're the same guys, but thanks to Veritas Network, we're on we're we're on a larger platform. So we, we got our social media gig going on, and we do uh so we do some really good interviews here uh for the Veritas Catholic Network, which is an EWTN affiliate. Uh so uh we we've gotten through COVID and as far as getting that that Catholic message out there, Tim, we're we're thriving by the grace of God, and we're very grateful for that. Uh I do because I mentioned in the bio that you write philosophy and theology. And we're here to talk about today, talk about going into the breach. We're here to talk about Tim's new book, which is the case for patriarchy. Now, if you want to hear a naughty, naughty word in our current cultural war, spiritual battle, patriarchy is one of them. That's in the top five, okay? But that's what we're going to talk about because we like causing trouble at the front line with Joe and Joe. But Tim uh, also teaches an online course, and Joe and I try to uh, um, emphasize to all our fellow Catholics out there, we need more education. None of us knows as much as we should. Tim assists in that with an online course. Tim, real quick, before we get into this conversation, let people know what the course is and where they can find it. Well, I actually have seven courses happening now this fall at Retrograde Online Academy. Go to timothyjgordon.com. You can take Latin in order to aid homeschoolers, we actually even teach algebra, a course as unsexy as that, church history, Aristotle's ethics, a lot of adults are in that one, Catholic social teaching, U.S. history, and scripture. All of these are courses taught by me or one of my excellent teachers online. It's it's really a, a happening place. Lots of um, funky mixtures of high school homeschooling kids or even high school uh, supplemental educated kids in there, college kids and uh, adults, adults of all ages ongoing their education. So the, the great classes go to timothyjgordon.com and click enroll. Thanks a million. Excellent, excellent, Tim. Um, and, and, and thank you for doing that. Because like I said, we all need education. Joe Arsenello, I'm going to hand it over to you. We'll just start with a quick prayer because all good things start with a prayer and this is a good thing in the name of the father son holy spirit amen remember O most gracious virgin, gracious mary, virgin mary never was it known that anyone who sought your help your help or sought your intercession was left unaided inspired by, inspired by this confidence we fly to you a virgin a virgin a virgin's our mother to the come before you we stand sinful and sorrowful, and sorrowful. O mother, mother of the word incarnate, word incarnate. Despise not our petitions, but in your clemency, in your clemency hear and answer us. Amen. 
Saint Dominic. Pray for us. Pray for us. Then Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Tim, so let's jump rock right and roll into it. I think we got to define our terms for our listeners. Uh, what is patriarchy as you define it in the book? I think that's a good starting point, and then we can go into the definition of modern feminism. Excellent. Yeah, patriarchy is Christianity. That's that's the secret of the book. When Jesus came, he set up a, a bifurcated patriarchy. And of the three major types of Christians, right, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, basically both of the bifurcated parts of the patriarchy are acknowledged. So this is very ecumenical, which the bishop should like. Um, in what sense? Are they widely acknowledged? Well, the top patriarchy is a clerical patriarchy, meaning Jesus picked an all-male presbyterate and an episcopate. Now, of course, this this gets a little funky with the, the Protestants, but both Catholic and Orthodox have all-male priests and bishops, and you know some of the Protestant uh, denominations figure that they have all-male priest and bishop ranks but of course that gets more complicated however the lower aspect of the bifurcated patriarchy is that which my book the case for patriarchy takes as its subject the clerical uh, sorry the lay patriarchy in under the lay patriarchy jesus established it really clearly that all householders would be male and if we look at the bimillennial tradition from, from then to now, guys, it's just 100% crystal clear. So clear that it would make a bad dissertation. As, as much as everyone is saying this is a controversial topic, the thesis that Christianity requires and establishes an all-male uh, lay patriarchy of householders is absolutely crystal clear. And and maybe we could talk about that from from the first you know from the the Didache and the apostles to the very first commentators on Scripture through the Middle Ages through the the Roman Catechism of Trent through five or six encyclicals of popes in the 20th century they all universally assumed that just like the clerical patriarchy was all male the lay patriarchy of male householders would involve priests, prophet, kings of each home. That's what a father and a husband is called to be. That is the way that the two sacraments or ordination on the one end, on the high end, and on the low end, marriage, sacramental matrimony works as you need at the level of what's called in under the lower, the lower order. You need an ecclesiola. The home is called to be the church in miniature, the household church, and a church needs a priest. That priest is the father of the household. This is the 2,000-year-old teaching of Christianity, and the father runs the house. He's the head. He's the boss, just like you know the, the priest runs his, his flock, the pastor of each individual parish. It has to work that way. Procreation is required on the lower end, such as to, to put the butts in the seats at the pews. And then, of course, the, the pastor runs his individual parish. But each priest, prophet, king of the home runs his individual home. Now, this is only taken, guys, as a controversial statement on the basis of Christian ignorance. I mean, I mean, who cares what they do outside Christianity, outside of Christendom? But it's only because there's widespread ignorance within the three major forms of Christianity, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, that Christians don't push back harder. Like everything else, what are Christians, even secular conservatives, what do we do best? We lose, we are great losers culturally. That's what Christians and conservatives are. That's what we do. We lose. We give up hallowed ground. We give it up to the Vandals and the Visigoths and the SJWs. And we haven't pushed back. Sometimes it's because of straight cowardice. But on this issue, we've given up the household patriarchy, male household holy leadership established by Christ himself. I'm only talking to Christians now. I'm not telling secularists how to run their household. Mm -hmm. um, we gave it up out of ignorance. 
You know, it's funny, Tim, I'm reading Out of the Ashes by Anthony Eslin. He echoes a lot of the same things that you do. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, I just throw that out there because Tim's voice is not alone. Um, how is Joe, feminism? Can I, Joe, can I add something real quick? One thing I don't I don't understand is because this is this is not just what should we say academic? Okay, you're not just throwing out ideas. I'm 53 years old, Tim. Joe's 50. We came up in a time when we were kids. Okay, that what you're talking about was put in practice. It was there was I I can rattle off the names of all the strong women I've known in my life. Every one of their husbands, whether they were uncles or cousins or whatever the case, every one of their husbands was acknowledged, acknowledged. Well, he he's the head of the household. My wife says all the time to people, to the annoyance of a lot of people, okay? Um, my wife says, uh, in our house, it's Jesus, Joseph, and me. In other words, when, when I have St. Joseph oil here, I, I bless my wife. My, my wife doesn't bless me. I bless her. What is my wife a doormat? See, this is the problem, and we're going to get into with feminism. They've perverted that to make that seem like subjugation or slavery, okay? But but this is, this is not foreign to people like us because, quite frankly, like I said, we, we grew up with it. The man was the head of the household. He was the one who went out and got, had a, probably a good union job, brought home enough money to put food on the table, to send the kids to school, to pay the mortgage and everything else. And if the wife worked, usually had a side job or something like that, um, in other words, to supplement the household income. But this, this is like you, you'd have people look at, looking at the three of us saying, the hell are these guys talking about? In the meantime, that's the way it was for a very, very, very long time. And this feminism, which we're going to get into, has perverted all that. So, Jim, but if you could comment on that first. Well, feminism perverted Christianity. I'm I'm known as a critic of the Catholic Episcopate and the, I guess up to and including the Bishop of Rome, if you watch my church, my show this week, what's going on in the church. But what actually spoiled the church was this household feminism. So, I mean, root and branch this is it. This is the biggest problem in society, guys. Like, if you want to talk about uh, transgenderism, which is the latest iteration of this, or homosexualism, which touch one at most, one out of every hundred people, that is nothing compared to the portion share of spoliation accomplished by feminism, which uh, touches 99 houses out of 100. At the very least, I mean, Christian and non-Christian alike, half of the households, it actually causes divorce, of course. But among those non-divorced households, I don't think people understand the ubiquity, the totality to which it has perverted everyone seeing running around, seeing imperious uh, mothers commandeering the role of fathers. Again, I'm just talking to Christians, but that's a big portion share of the people out there. So even in the households, you, you go over to dinner and you, you go to your traditional Catholic friends' households, and you still see trappings of feminism. You still see it. What do you see? They kind of know the man should be leading in the prayer, so you're seeing him getting kicked under the table. It's like, the, you know, here, you need to be the leader. I'm giving you an order to be the leader, you know? It's completely pervasive in our culture. I have two or three friends who are, are married like me and don't seem subject to this. I mean, look, feminism basted from the middle 1800s to its coming out party in the 1900s, about 100 years. This always makes it stark for people. Then its second iteration, you know, feminism is the iteration that a man can act like a woman, a woman can act like a man. Its second iteration was homosexualism, which which basted for about 10 years from like the middle 90s to about 2006, Proposition 8 in California. And then it was ready to come out. 10 years. Transgenderism, and of course, homosexualism is just takes the idea of feminism one step further. Hey, if a man can be a can act like a woman, a woman can act like a man writ large as feminism says, then why can't they do so in the bedroom, right? That's homosexualism. And then, you know, 10 years after the homosexualism comes out, which took about 10 years to base, you have transgenderism. And that all happened in one year from 2015 to 2016. And this is just the most radical iteration 
of the original feminist proposition. Like not only can a man and a woman act like each other fungibly, but they can actually ontologically be one another, you know, just put on a dress, you become a woman. But, but the thing is, they might be grabbier, homosexualism and transgenderism, but they're not nearly as important or as ubiquitous as the original germ. The original germ was feminism. And guess what? This is another thing that shocks people. And you go from 10 year, 100 years to, to form to 10 years to one year. So you, what you got is a logarithmic growth function. These things are happening faster and faster. The original is feminism. It seems that way. We say all the time on the show, Tim, it, it seems that way. It's like, you know, it, it was, uh, and for those of you who are just joining us, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe in the breach, and you are going in the breach when you have Timothy J. Gordon um, in a conversation on the Veritas Catholic Network. Joe and I say on the show all the time, Tim, the long march is over. They've oh, yeah. floored the, the, the gas pedal. There is no more long march. That's right. Yeah, the long march through the institutions is done. It, it, it um, not not metaphysically, but but physically, historically, contingently, it seems to have gotten our our church right. At least the the aspects that can be spoiled of our church, and that's if it could get the church, then it's done. Everything sports will be something. Hopefully, we'll talk about a little bit later. The feminist pervaded sports. Mm. The, of all the subversive leftisms, you know, Marxism, socialism, not really much of a difference there. Um, economic uh, fascism, economic communism, and then all the subversive cultural ideologies. Feminism is the original, guys. It's the worst. People all think, oh, this is some side thing that kind of lurks around, you know, the mainstream the way economic Marxism does. But feminism is much more central to what's going on with human sin writ large and leftism writ large. So like, think of it this way. What was the original sin? The original sin by Eve involving Adam was feminism. There's always two parts to a feminist act, a feminist mortal sin. The part of commission and omission. The omission is always on the males, right? Having his headship commandeered by someone else, by his helpmate, and the act of commandeering itself, which is an act of commission by Eve. This is exactly, if you go read the book of Genesis, you see that Adam was standing idly by as his headship was commandeered, as his wife is doing doing household business, you know, dealing with an outsider, but the serpent in the garden. And he's just standing idly by. All of the first biblical commentators, by the way, I'm talking Jerome, Ambrose, Augustine, St. John Chrysostom, um, the, the commentators that even the Protestants accept, they all say the original sin wouldn't have happened if Adam would have been the one doing dialogue with the serpent. So two parts, commission and omission. Uh, feminism is much, much closer to sins and what's going on culturally than most people understand it is the leftism of all leftisms that is why abortion is the untouchable unholy cow of leftism you can't touch mm. so if you if there, there's two moments of this that i ask you to look at in the case for patriarchy and i present the evidence there's something fundamental to fallen human nature to concupiscence the state that all of us have after the fall of adam and eve in the garden because of feminism. And th that's like carried with us like a germ in the concupiscent state, in the what we call the post-lapsarian state. But feminism goes dormant for all of human history until about the middle 1800s. The year is 1848, the beginning of feminism, not radical feminism, not second or third wave feminism, but feminism, meaning the first wave of it which again, Catholics, Christians, conservatives, what do we do best? We lose, we seed ground. We always say the abiding narrative goes, hey, you know, first wave feminism was really good and cool. It wasn't, it wasn't at all. In first wave feminism at the Seneca Falls Convention of upstate New York, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others got together and fortified, reified feminism 
and they they outlined a work product that you can go read. It's called The Declaration of Sentiments, which is a hilarious title for a bunch of feminists to come up with. And the five, or depending on how you look at it, six main points in this Declaration of Independence style script are actually the five or six main points that people typically associate with second wave feminism. The famous, most famous iteration of this is a 1970 New York boardroom that Mallory Miller recalls uh, women chanting, what do we want and when do we want it? Um, Five or six that you'd associate with second wave feminism or radical feminism. It's right there at the beginning. There are no legitimate waves to the morphology of feminism. The big ideas are get women out of the home. That's the main idea. That's the main idea of feminism. Get them out of the home. You usually tempt them out of there with a job, with the, which the Catholic Church for 2,000 years has always forbidden to married women, right? Uh, that's, that's a big one. That's a big no-no culturally now. I'll, I'll show you all the places where the church, even in the 20th century, forbids that. So you part a woman from her kids. You also tell a woman to undo the inequalities the moral inequalities between the man and the woman by being sexually promiscuous like the male. Uh, it says women should be in the clerical patriarchy, uh, you know, be priests and bishops. It says women, um, generally speaking, should seek to undo all of the inequalities between man and woman, which is anti-Christian, right? Uh, the Bible makes utterly clear that a, a wife is to submit to her husband. And uh, um, generally speaking, it says that women should have jobs of equal pay everywhere. Then, then it gets to the, the voting thing. But the point is, first wave feminism, like all waves of feminism, is evil and not open to the true believing Christian. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo with Joe Racinello. Fascinating conversation with Timothy J. Gordon talking about his recent book, The Case for Patriarchy. Joe Racinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. You know, Tim, I always say you tell a book by the tree. I mean, not a book. You tell the tree by the by the fruit it bears. And progressive values, and I say that with quotations, it's just not working. Like, f- families are falling apart in America. This model doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you, you, you alluded to something um, before. You talked about a sacramental marriage. Tim, I'll be honest with you. Maybe this is controversial. I don't even believe in secular marriage. I don't believe in it because it doesn't work. We are fallen people and we need God's grace in marriage. And that's one of the drivers that keeps me on the road because I love my wife. I love my children. And I know they need me. Talk about how this model, it doesn't work, and it's leading to bad fruit. Well, the priestless model doesn't work. This is what we aver as Catholics. You need, you need parish priests. You need holy parish priests. <laughs> I call my listeners parish orphans because we have so few. To make, the, to make Christianity go the way it was meant to go. Jesus didn't spread his ministry, you know, by a bullhorn or, or by a cell phone you know, just give directions. He, he traveled around and he gave of himself. He was the model of the highest priest. He was the model of the highest prophet, model of the highest king, you know, Moses, Elijah, and, and David. He, he sat in all of those offices and clerically he's saying, okay, so, you know, he establishes this church hierarchically ordered from Rome to all the bishops around the world, to all the priests. People need what the Germans call Dasein, they need you being there. When it comes to the household patriarchy, the priest, prophet, king of each home is the father, the, 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 the ecclesiola, the church in miniature, each individual home is so badly needed. Uh, you know, the Brookings and the Pew Research Fund have done these studies independently where they said, how, how badly does the family need the father to be the priest for, for Christians? And the studies are really stark. If only one parent has any interest in dragging the kids to church, if it's the father, you get some startlingly low attrition rate. The kids still go, right? Because they expect this to be done by the priest of the home. And whether they expect it epistemically or not isn't the point. Ontologically, the kids get that from the father. 
only 10% of those kids will fall away. And the number of both the parents, by the way, go, the mother and the father are the ones dragging the kids to church enthusiastically. The number stays there. It doesn't go any higher. It was just, you know, 10% uh, uh, attrition, 90% stay in the faith. Whereas if it's only one parent taking the kids to church and that parent is the mother, the number is like, it grows to like 75% attrition, right? Only 25% stay. That's, you know, fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. That's all you need to know right there. Why is it that, you know, all of me and my friends, our moms were taking us to church. I, I'm not talking about friends from, from split households, single, single parent households. I'm talking, you know, a lot of times my dad would come with us even before he converted, then he converted. And yeah, the fire was still coming from my mom to make us go to church every Sunday. That's how all my friends were. This is the attack on the household. This is the attack on Christendom that actually Satan, uh, that, that sister Lucy of Fatima predicted to Cardinal Carlo Cafara in 1981. She said, look, the last attack of Satan on the world, Mary had told her, would come on the family specifically. And Cardinal Cafaro, right before he died in 2017, he said two months before he died, that time is now, right? A lot of people would look at the homosexualism and the transgenderism, which is a more open attack on the family, but that affects no one. It affects virtually no one. The feminism affects all of us. When you see your mom as a young man, is the only one taking the faith seriously when all of your religion teachers are these, you know, liberal ex nuns and bad tivas telling you God is just basically love and that's it, which is again my experience in the 80s and 90s being educated. A young man doesn't take this seriously. If a young man grows up, doesn't take it seriously, then the cycle will repeat because women and children are meant to follow men. So, do households need male leadership, particularly male? Uh, sort of lay priesthood, you know, the dad being the one that's excited about the truth of Christianity. All the other religions are fake. They're all false. Sorry, sorry to say it. They're all a joke, even intellectually. Christianity is the one truth, though. And men get excited about truth. And when kids see that, they all fall in love with the faith. I've seen this myself as a male theology teacher. I was the department chair all the students take it seriously. All the kid, cool kids start taking it seriously. They're like, oh, we had all these female theology teachers. We thought, you know, we just thought it was a joke. We just thought they, this is a, a psyop, man. But Christianity's real. Holy cow. They're saying this this senior year of high school. So um, women and children need the men to be patriarchs. Men need to be patriarchs too. And how do we know that? It's also a fruit of the tree observation. What do you see all around now that men are not leading their wives and their kids to heaven? What you see is weird weekend warrior stuff. And when I say weird, I mean, guys, my friends, particularly as, as I'm climbing into middle age now, getting into weird like motorcycle clubs and doing, of course, hobbies are amazing. You need to have hobbies, but doing stuff that takes you away from the wife and kids for whole weekends at a time every weekend because they're craving to be leaders and they're getting into, you know, not that getting into politics is bad, but um, getting into politics because they're craving the leadership. You know, they're, they're trying to be president of their wine club like Fraser Crane because they're craving the leadership. Men all crave to be leaders. Only a couple can have actual positions of authority over other households, you know, like Donald J. Trump. Only one man can be president, but all men crave leadership. Thomas Aquinas says nature does not equip us with a desire or an appetite that, that is not fit to be adequate. Meaning if you have the desire, it should be, it's normal. It's perverse. It's a perversion of nature. Women do not naturally crave leadership except for the fact that they're being brainwashed and groomed for it from Disney movies onward nowadays. But men all naturally crave it because it's teleology. It's how God made us. Right. So women are being brainwashed to want it. They're trying to unbrainwash males to not want it or seek it. And it's all BS. The fact of the matter is all men seek it because all men are meant to seek it. You're either supposed and to go become a priest with the one vocation and, and you'll, let's take you'll a be quick kind break. of leader of other people's kids or you're your priest of your own household. 
Tim, let's take a quick break. I want We want to talk about reversing this trend when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello, way in the breach with Timothy J. Gordon talking about his new book, The Case for Patriarchy, on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello, and we are in the breach with Timothy J. Gordon talking about his recent book, The Case for Patriarchy. You're listening to us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Joe Resinello, I'm going to hand it over to you. You know, <clears throat> Tim, you talked about, like, priorities, and, and I was listening to you, and what was coming into my mind is this conversation seems that it's about an identity. We don't know who we are as a society anymore. That was Francis's thing when he looked into the cross of St. Damiano. Who are you, Lord, and who am I? And people don't know who they are and where they're going. You said something I think that is very important and I wanna highlight it. A man is to guide his family to heaven. This is the most important thing that a man can do. I've taught pre-Cana classes and I always ask that. What is the goal of your marriage? Is it to get rich or is it to get your family to heaven? And that priority isn't there. And it's at the root of it. We don't know who we are anymore. Talk about that, because I think if people like basically could I identify as children of God, they would go down that right road. Talk about that a little bit, because, I mean, you have friends as, as I do. Their goal isn't to get... A, Good guys get into heaven, Tim. You know what I'm saying? Talk about it. Well, the stupidest thing you can do is to approach any mission, let alone your central life mission, without asking the what, the why, and the wherefore. And, and this is, you're right, Joe, this is what people do when they're embarking on the lay vocation. There are two, two sacramental vocations, right? JP2 talked about four. I think it's kind of to, to, to make to make everyone feel okay, hooray for everything. There are two sacramental vocations. A young man is to pick either the cloth or the the marital vocation. And here's the the question. I think all men are encouraged when they're getting into the cloth, the, the minority of men that go that route, to think about the what, the why fair and, and the the why. But that's not what we're doing. Even though we have specific classes for, for married couples before they get married, you know, like the RCIA of matrimony, classes on how to have a Christian marriage, those classes are bunk, they're garbage, they're being wasted. We have to say, what is it? Okay, it is a holy sacrament. It is the holy sacrament in the only sacramental fork that we have in the seven sacraments, the only fork in the road. Um. Why do we get married? Well, to get to heaven. Wherefore? You know, how does this happen? Through procreation and education of offspring. This is the purpose. And, and you know, we, when you're procreating as many kids as you can have, and then educating those kids, you're also educating all of those who are submissive to you. And I, I do want to talk about submission here because it's, it's the main uh, thing being attacked by the Christian feminists 
who are really a circular square. You can't be a Christian feminist. And, um, you know, people don't know this. So it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to engage on even a little errand to go to the store without knowing what you're supposed to get and, and how you're supposed to get it. What, what aisle do I go to at the store? Well, people are doing this with their whole lives. They're getting married. They don't know why. Marriage has been made unattractive. Young men aren't attracted to marriage anymore. Why? Because they're not getting, they're getting the, the burden side. They're not getting the benefit side. And, and men, you know, men aren't doing their part either. They're, they're, they're addicted to porn. They're, uh, they're, they're morally incontinent. They're soft. They're not being strong protectors of their wives, but they're not being respected. And this was all fomented by the feminists. So it's a demand side economics problem. Men aren't wanting to get married anymore simply because it's not this cool, sexy thing. Holy matrimony, ask any priest, holy matrimony is what they give up when they go into the cloth. And any priest that's worth his salt, the red-blooded male in the priesthood is like, marriage is incredibly sexy when you do it the ordered right way. And this is sort of the beginning of the solution. Just let holy matrimony be seen in its true light, what it really is. It's a very sexy thing, guys, where the man is strong and protective, which is what all women want, right? Strong, protective. Men need to be big and strong. You need to be lifting weights in your off hours. You should train in some martial art in your off hours or else you can't do your job. That's the baseline entry of your job. What's your other part of your job? Baseline part win bread, right? You need income, need food for all those mouths. Uh, So you got to do that. You got to win bread and you got to be strong enough to protect your wife and kids. This is what attracts women. Then at the end of the day, you have to teach and you teach through both playing and praying. So it's a bit like Theoden of Rohan says when he says, hey, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, Pippin, my my riders can't bear you as a burden. They got a three-day journey to war and then they have to have strength enough to fight that's every man every day when he's going off to work got to go off and work seven or eight hours and then you come home that's just the baseline you just earn bread for the day that's your job as a man it's not the woman's job that's your job but that's the lowest level description of the job of a male householder a priest of the household then you got to get home and you have to play and pray with the kids. That's where all the teaching happens by playing and praying with the kids, being, being one of them, being, you know, figuring out how school went that day, homeschool or whatever. And that's where you really have to have your energy. Most guys figure because they've been secularized, they get home from work and their job is done and they crack open a beer and, and whatever, tune out. That's fine later that night, but you got to be invested in your kids because we're not materialists. The highest function that you have as a father is not going and earning bread. It's you got to get home, probably need to lift weights for an hour too, right? Because it's, it's very hard to be physically imposing as a defender, you know, like a like a big, I don't know, elk or something. This is, this is what they do. They protect their young. They, you got to be big and strong looking. That's more than half the battle. But then you got to find time to play with them, pray with your kids. And, and men aren't tending this because they don't know that it's part of the wherefore. This is how you get your wife and kids to heaven. Why do all teenagers of most of these households make fun of their parents? Oh, they're just, you know, a kind of acquisitive people of the suburbs. And they don't really care about what they claim to care about. Because they're right. Most people in the city or the suburbs come home. It's about acquiring more and more personality, more property, right? They claim to be Christians, a lot of us out in the suburbs, but do they really practice what they preach? No, and a lot of times they don't even know what's being preached. So teenagers have a very, very sharp antenna for this. All you people out there that, that comfort yourself with the notion, oh, my teenager kind of spurns my authority, but that's just what all teenagers do. That's nonsense, man. It's nonsense. It's not true. They do it to 98 or 99% of the households out there, but it's because 98 or 99% of the Christian households, Catholic households, don't deserve that mantle of authority as by merits, right? There are 1% to 2% of people out there that have teenagers that are like, my dad's cool. My dad does what he says. He says what he means and he does what he says, you know, like Al Pacino says in Heat. He comes home. 
He lives by his word. He's not addicted to porn. He's all your kids know what you're doing up in the room for two, three hours. He's not addicted to porn. He's attracted to my mom. My mom's fit. My dad's fit. My dad protects us all. He works hard. Then he comes home. He prays with us and he hangs out with us. We hang out. We walk. We do some family activity every night. We eat together every night. The whole family is not running around buzzing, doing their own things. My dad's strong. I saw my dad knock some guy out because uh, the, the guy did a cat call to my mom. That's not what's happening in most of these Christian households, right? The men are physically weak. You know, their, 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 their authority has been supplanted by a henpecking wife. They're addicted to porn. Everyone in the household is doing their own thing. It's super atomized. They go to church on Sunday, but no one believes it. And the teenagers learn to hate the authority of their parents because the authority of their parents, namely their father, is a joke. It's a thin veneer. That's not, don't comfort yourself, people. Challenge yourself. That doesn't need to be, that's, there's nothing inherent to teenagers. Teenagers, because I worked with them for a long time teaching them, they're very quick to pick up on true authority and fake authority. And most of the authority out there in crumbling Christendom is fake. But when they see a real man, a real household priest of Christ, you know, a soldier for Christ that loves his wife, is attracted to his wife. Like I said, when men are like this, women are very attracted to them. When women yeah. are uh, submissive and say, hey, just give me marching orders. You know, you're, you're, you're the best king out there. You're, you know, oh, oh, king, my king, I love you. I'm going to do it. I'm, what, yeah, just give me orders. And women keep themselves like men keep themselves fit. Women keep themselves fit. This is the key to having a good marriage. And they You're do their main the job, which is submission. The, the teenagers see that. They don't want to think of their parents' romantic attraction, but they respect it. Mm -hmm. This is how you build up. Tim, um, well, real quick, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello. We're way in the breach with Timothy J. Gordon. We're discussing his new book, The Case for Patriarchy on the Veritas Catholic Network. Two things, Tim. One is I would I would challenge anybody. I, I say all the time, my life's an open book. I lived 20 years, a debauched life for 20 years, from the time I was in my late teens to the time I was, let's say, in my mid to late 30s. When I look at my life in the last 10 years since I met my wife and I married late, okay, the comparison, it, there is no comparison. You, you're talking about deep, deep darkness, you know, in contrast to to brilliant light. In other words, so that this idea that living that kind of free-willing, sexually liberated lifestyle somehow is a benefit, that's just a blatant lie. We know that, but we need to emphasize that to other men. And very quickly, you also said something I think is very important when it comes down to it. The women that are attracted to feminized men are not the women you want. Now, is that, now, you didn't say that. I'm just saying, because what you said was what women are attracted to, what young children, teenagers are attracted to, that strength in the man. But there's no, you got let me just jump in. There are no women attracted to feminized men. That's, that's a lie. They portray that on the media. It's a psyop, man. Women aren't attracted to feminized men. They're not. Right. Right. And what, what they are, no matter how much, I mean, that's why, that's why real manhood, of course, and we could get into sports a little bit if you like, I'm sure you want to, uh, but where, where real manhood is under attack because that's their threat. That's the biggest threat to them. Yeah. We know that as Catholic men, we know that in this culture war, destroy the man, as we've been saying for the last 45 minutes or so, destroy the man, you'll wreck society. But it's funny too, um, but men are not attracted to masculine women. Like I could remember when I worked at Morgan Stanley and I would go up to Westchester and be in their corporate headquarters and you would see some very beautiful women, highly educated, who act like men. And I, I was single at the time and I would just say to myself, there is no way. And so, so, you know, a feminist would say they intimidate you. Actually, no, they don't. They're not acting like women. Right. I don't want a woman like that to raise my kids. I'm sorry. And I think it works both ways. Right. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's not surprising at all. A, a woman that acts like a man is not attractive to men, uh, vice versa. This is because of our sexual alterity, meaning our otherness. We're attracted to what's different about them. No, a woman that acts like a man, that, that thinks she can, it makes men laugh. 
it doesn't it's not intimidating right that's a psyop that that feminists say that oh except me acting like a man and i do have i'm a very poor substitute same as men are very poor substitutes for women or if you're intimidated by by this transsexual large bruce jenner acting like a woman women respect this guy as a woman or you're uh you're threatened by how effeminate he is this is a joke no women who act like men i'm talking about a large swath here, guys, you know, women athletes that think they can beat male athletes, which there's a major section on the book, all the times this has happened. Uh, women that think that they're uh, more the head than the heart of the home. This is a joke. They're not designed that way. Women that think they're, they're, uh, they, they can, they can think like men in all the same ways that men were designed with very different cortex. This is a proven fact very different uh, neurobiology. It's a joke. But, but that's not why I spurn it. I don't spurn it because I'm, in, I'm not intimidated by it at all. It literally, not, not one corpuscle. Any more than, say, Karsten Brosh, the male 200-ranked tennis player, professional tennis player around the year 2000, was intimidated by Venus and Serena Williams, the greatest of all time two female tennis players, when they each challenged him one day. He smoked a cigarette, drank a beer. He hadn't warmed up. They came up to him, Venus first, and said, hey, you're 200th ranked male. I think being best or second best female in the world, I could beat you. He laughed to himself, smoked the beer, drank <laughs> drank a beer, smoked a cigarette, or, or maybe he did the opposite just to, just to impress her. And then he played them, and he scorched her, you know? Like he was up four zip at one point, ended up beating her 6-1. And he's whatever, probably a little bit buzzed from it. Venus later said, I've never, ever had a ball returned to me like that. Of course, because you're playing against a bunch of girls. Sports are for men, ladies. Sports are for men. Then uh, Serena comes up next. This is number one and number two playing against a guy that's buzzed who's nowhere in the top 100 or even 200. He's like 201st ranked male tennis player. Same exact story. Went up four zip, then he ended up winning six two. Same exact story. We just saw the embarrassing joke of U.S. women's soccer uh, play out the the Summer Olympics a couple months ago, and of course we are all rooting against them. They're all woke. They hate America. They hate men, by and large. Well, they challenged in 2015 if 14 and under Dallas Club boys soccer team. Not even like the best in the United States, 14 and under male, but just some Dallas team that had been assembled there in Dallas. And they got beaten, the women's U.S. soccer team. And this surprises people. They got beaten 5-2 badly, 14-year-olds and under, prepubescent boys largely. So give me a break. When you, when you see female UFC fighters, what if your, your dumbest friends been trained to say, oh, she could beat you up? No, no, bro. She couldn't. That's not true. Sports are military training. It's one of the psyops. It's one of the ways they're taking your girls away from you. They're brainwashing them. They're trying to make them want to be leaders. They're trying to make them develop testosterone, which only certain activities do. And people will say, oh, can a girl even stay fit? Yeah. You know, running lowers testosterone. This is why men actually shouldn't do it for, for long distances. It lowers testosterone. Um, don't let them lift weights. They're getting girls increasingly. I've seen the numbers on this. More and more girls are weightlifting. This increases testosterone when they're doing things like squats and all that. Aggression, the increased aggression of sports increases testosterone. They're saying, oh, women are the future leaders of the world. They are malforming the girls. It's disordered. And of course, you're not attracted to it. Of course, you're not attracted to it. What should a young man be attracted to? A woman that he's dating that's like, look, I'm looking for the best man I can find, the best uh, model of a, of a Christian priest, prophet, king. And once I find him, I'm going to be the best handmaid ever. I'm, I'm, because I, I have my choices now. I'm not married yet. This is something you might say on a first date. But once I find him, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best handmaid, right? Like, like, like Daryl says in the office, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock his world. With, with how good a handmaid I am and with how loyal, how much fealty, and I have no delusions of being a man. I'm not transgendered at all. I am a woman, and I, want, I am proud to find that best man 
He's, he's the king, the priest, the prophet of the household, and I'm going to serve him so well. That's what you're looking for. That's what St. Paul says when he talks about Ephesians 5. Women submit to men in all things, as Sarah called Abraham Lord. Unfortunately, we had Pope John Paul II perverting that, that scripture with his private interpretation. He said, oh, there's mutual submission there. Mutual submission is impossible, except as an analogy. Where does St. Paul so, so suggests that men should submit themselves. He says they should submit their lives in defense of hers, meaning you you die. That that it's the same word that inerrant scripture teaches all three types of Christian. If if something happens, you be the one to give up your life. If the if you're on the Titanic with your wife and you hit uh, an iceberg, men give up their lives. Women go on the lifeboat. That's the only way that a Christian man is invoked by inerrant Christian scripture or tradition to submit to his wife. He is the king. A king can't submit to anyone. And in St. Paul says in countless places, not just Ephesians 5, which they bracket at church. They censor at church. Four Sundays ago, they did it. They, they line that reading out. They bracket it in the missal. But also Colossians, 1 Corinthians, Timothy, Titus. There's another place because it's six. St. Paul is utterly clear. Men are the leaders. Women are not leaders of the household in any way. The man is the head of the household. Women is the heart. That's why it's a sin for men to veil. St. Paul's very specific about this. Women veil to show that her relationship with God is mediated. Who's it mediated by? Partly her husbands. We believe in this mediation. That's why we have priests. But a man's headship over the household is not mediated by anything. This is just Christianity, and it's not just Roman Catholic, even though we're the main ones that have our women veiling at church. Protestants don't do this, but they know it because in Scripture. So faithful Protestants even know this stuff. Mm-hmm. The Roman Catechism, the Catechism of Trent, makes it utterly clear. I want everyone to go look up duties of a husband, duties of a wife. This is codified in the Roman Catechism, Catechism of Trent. Duties of a wife, always be near the home right? Don't, don't do anything. You should love to stay home. Direct quote. Should hate to go out except by dire necessity. Tim, and should submit uh, to her husband in all things. Tim, let's, uh, because we, we have about probably around seven or eight minutes left and we want to at least get to one more question because, uh, but you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello and the brief with Timothy J. Gordon talking about his most recent book, The Case for Patriarchy. So uh, Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you because I know you always like to, to end it with solutions. Well, I I think Tim has a number of books, and I want to briefly talk about another one, which I highly recommend, uh, Catholic Republic, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. I mean, there is no debate with regard to the problems America is facing. Um, We could talk for hours and hours about it. Um, I truly believe, I know the culture does not, that it is vital that Catholic men um, are at the forefront to restore America. That's part of the reason why we call our show The Frontline and why a priest encouraged us, Joe, and myself to do this. And I know this is why Tim and his friends do the same thing. Um, Catholic men must be at the forefront of restoring America. Tim, briefly talk a little bit about that book and how could Catholic men go about doing it? Tim, we have about, just to give you a heads up, we have a, probably about six and a half minutes or so before the end of the show. But please, knock yourself out because that's really what we have to drive home to our audience. Gotcha. Yeah, it's funny when you're an author of books. I, I always felt that um, Milo Yiannopoulos first published that book. It, it lost its first publisher, Why America Will Perish Without Rome. It's called Catholic Republic. And then his company folded up like a week after it came out. So it didn't get its due then. My my uh, publisher for Case for Patriarchy, which is Sophia Institute Press, Sophia Institute Press, you can go on there and, and order the book Case for Patriarchy or Catholic Republic now. They picked up Catholic Republic because of what had happened with Milo, and they're like, this is a great book. It didn't get its due. We've, we've gotten some good sales, hit, hit the 10,000 mark that all publishers want, but I still feel that it hadn't gotten its due. And right now, the last couple months as I've been plugging Case for Patriarchy, there's all this interest in Catholic Republic. What's what's the thesis? Well, the thesis is related to what's going on now. I wrote an article in 2012 for American Thinker. You can go check it out. Almost 10 years ago um, called A Declaration of Grievances. And all I do 
is I stack up the grievances that the American colonists adduced against uh, mainly Parliament, but but King George the Third, and I, I stack those up against the grievances, incursions by the federal government into our life now, or really it was then 2012 and there are many many more over the last nine years right and i just asked the question so do we believe in the principles of july 4th 1776 because i mean i'm just comparing bottom lines here here are the grievances they had it was like a small tariff on their breakfast beverage stamp act sugar act townsend act tea act tariffs pretty much small tariffs with no income tax they weren't being taxed like 40% of their income, and they didn't have the cultural Marxism happening nowadays, being imposed on them legislatively by parliament. Nowadays, we have, I don't know, like 100 times the tax that they were, that they were rebelling against violently, uh, I might add. And we have all these cultural uh, trappings of Marxism being foisted on us by Congress. It's illegal to make pornography, contraception, sodomy, gay marriage illegal by any of the 50 states. It's illegal to make these ills illegal. So I just say, so what's worse and what should be done about it? You know, I'm just asking a question here. I'm just doing the arithmetic implied by July 4th. Do we believe in this or do we believe in, um, you know, being being sappy fat asses eating hot dogs? I, I, think, I think it's the latter. But if we claim it's the former, then look at the bottom line here. And then I just say, look, America's the nation, wired Catholic, labeled Protestant, and functioning secular that's that's america and now we know that the demographics of early america were all protestant but it also was founded on natural law natural law gives us these trappings of natural rights natural laws the headwaters which is not a protestant doctrine it's a catholic teaching natural law you hear a lot about it natural rights we like those. That's one of the goodies of, of natural law. Subsidiarity or federalism or states' rights or local rule, that's all the same stuff. We like that. That's the main idea of the Constitution. Natural rights are the main idea of the Declaration. Subsidiarity or localism is the main idea of the Constitution. Virtue ethics, basically every founder out there said that America could go nowhere without virtue ethics. And then there are three more goodies that are derivatives of natural law, too, in chapters four, five, six. But I'm just talking about the, the book's first three chapters alone. America's premised on natural rights, subsidiarity, and natural virtue of the people, right? Popular virtue, virtue ethics. Well, this is all Catholic. And so even though they were pitching Catholic intellectual tradition secretly, plagiarized Catholic intellectual tradition, if you look at the writings of John Locke and Algernon Sidney, who are Protestants, but they're just ripping off all the Catholic thinkers. They're pitching those to a, a demographically Protestant young nation in the late 1700s. Well, how does that work? Well, Protestantism doesn't have the fruits requisite to run a nation because you need these things. You need natural rights, localism, uh, uh, virtue ethics in the people, and a, and a few other things besides that are all distinctly Catholic. So how do we get them now? Well, it's an embarrassing argument because I say, you know, America needs Rome to survive. Well, Rome's in really bad shape too. Look at Pope Francis. So it's a tougher argument to make, but I'm not actually talking about America needs our Pope to rule over it, whether it's, you know, Leo the Thirteenth, which would be a tempting option, or Francis I, which is not at all a tempting option. I mean the intellectual tradition, the Catholic teachings on politics and nature, which give us such a thing as the idea of natural law and its derivatives, all these goodies that Americas know we want, good goodies, natural rights, subsidiarity, virtue ethics, etc. So it's the Catholic intellectual tradition that's needed. I do give a way forward in the book. The way forward is always more localism, which is why I tell people go to realestateforlife.org. Tell them Tim sent you. Get out of your blue state. Get to a red state. I was a Californian. I moved to Mississippi when I got canceled. We need to meet in the really red center, you know, southeastern center from Texas to Florida. And... Then we'll get more, more, more plans from there. That's just the first step. But we need to group ourselves together and pull ourselves all together out of the blue states. That's the American way. That's what 1776 was all about, secession. 
So there's there's a lot, and it's all rich in the Catholic intellectual tradition and barren in the Protestant intellectual tradition, and that's why they plagiarized uh, from Catholicism, these Protestant leaders of a Protestant nation, when they held the greatest revolution in the history of the world, greatest secession movement in the history of the world. Jim, I want to say this. The last time you were on the show, we said we're going to take Texas to Florida and as high as Tennessee. My wife and I are going to be moving to Arizona, so if you don't mind... Could, we're leaving the blue state going to a purple one. We're going to try to make it more red. In our Catholic Republic, can we can we take take uh, Arizona with us? Because I, I need to be a part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I yeah, part. Arizona's totally based aside from the cities. But the, the problem is that's what you say about all blue or purple cities. It's really, really conservative outside of the cities. It's more conservative outside of the cities than any other state which says that, which is all 50 of them. Well, we're all Tim, more we, yeah, we, we we'll have try. to. Unfortunately, we're right out of time. But yeah, we'll try. Once again, once again, let everybody know uh, where they can buy the book. Thanks a million. Go to Sophia Institute Press or just go to Amazon. The book is The Case for Patriarchy, also Catholic Republic, both on Sophia Institute Press. Check out my courses on timothyjgordon.com. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. Awesome. Thank you, Timothy J. Gordon. And thank you all for joining us here at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And as I said earlier, wherever you find Joe and I on social media, Facebook, YouTube, until they shut us down, of course, but up until that point, like, subscribe, share. Do all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. 